0: So we completed this kind of deliverance through the Red Sea, Exodus thirteen fourteen and Exodus 15. Miriam breaks into song, leads all of the people into song of the great deeds that God has done, that the fist of God in deliverance of his people has come down on the oppressive slave drivers that have brutalized the people of God, and now they have been set free breaking into song, traveling towards the promised land. And as they make their way just a couple weeks into the promised land, here we find them now in 16. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin. Now, Sin is, is, is a Hebrew word here, and it doesn't actually mean sin. It's just a place name. Uh, but it does have some applicability nonetheless. And, and they came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month. So the, uh, the Passover where they were delivered out of bondage was on the 15th day of the first month. And so after kind of the, the first little bit of travels as they come out of Egypt, now we're, we're really just one month into this, but really only a few weeks into the desert right now. Uh, on the 15th day of the second month, after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, this is an interesting verse here, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. Exclamation mark. I, I mean, I, I think that's the what the what. Uh, not, not the manna that's coming. I mean, what the what? How, how is it that a grateful children of God, having been delivered on the path to the promised land, learning to rely on the, the word on the Lord Himself, that this quickly they could say Wow, you know what? This this deliverance thing that God is claiming, I I don't know. I I think I'm over it already. Why? Why not? Why couldn't we have been part of those that were condemned with the Lord? Maybe that would have been better for us. Wow. We'll, We'll come back to this. If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat round pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. That doesn't seem like would be my first response, by the way. I was like, you go tell those people, little ungrateful, entitled. You know what? I've got a message for them. But what's God's message? unbelievable right this is this blows me away again and again because this is the god of the old testament yes this is the god of the old testament and all the people have, have just basically said thanks but no thanks for everything that you've just done the the greatest deeds that anybody could have ever met thanks but no thanks and now god says you know what i i i'm going to i'm going to feed them tenderly i'm going to gently float down This wonderful, sweet bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day, gather enough for that day. This way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that to be twice as much as they gather on other days. He's going to mention the Sabbath in just a moment here. First time it'll be mentioned. So Moses and Aaron said... Because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You're not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Oof. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. Well, let me pause here. The beginning of all of this begins because God also hears. And it says at the burning bush, when he calls Moses... He calls to Moses, he says, I have seen the oppression of my people. I have heard their crying out because of the slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. You know, it's beautiful that the God who hears his people at a time of their oppression, at a time of relative righteousness on their part, is the same God who hears them as being entitled little snot-nosed ingrates, and still the response from God is one of, let me gather them, let me take care of them. While Aaron was speaking, verse 10, to the whole Israelite community, they looked towards the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. In the cloud. I would imagine if you're the multitude, the two million that are all kind of bumbling, stumbling into one another, trying to figure out where it is that we're going to go. Where are the guys taking us? And that behold, you look. And of course, the desert, there's no trees to block your view. There's just the desert, the wilderness. There's there and the glory of the Lord appears. But what is the last word that you hear before you see the glory of the Lord? You hear my grumbling my grumbling whew, and the glory of the Lord. I would imagine you'd be like, brace yourselves. Like, oh, he, unfortunately, yes, he heard us when we were crying out in our oppression, but now he's also heard us again. And, and here we go. The Lord said to Moses, verse 11, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. And then again, what you won't imagine at twilight, you will eat meat and in the morning. You will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, that I am Yahweh. Interestingly, Moses begins at the burning bush when God hears and sees their misery, and He lets them know, let the people know who I am. I am Yahweh. Whenever you see this tetragrammaton, which is Lord in all caps, uh, in in your Bible. It actually is just simply the word for the Lord, the name of the Lord, which is Yahweh. And so now God, again, is saying, now they're really going to... I mean, they knew my strength. Now they're going to know my tenderness as well. They're going to know their God, Yahweh. That evening, quail came down, covered the camp, and in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor when the israelites saw it they said to each other manna or what is it for they did not know what it was moses said to them it is the bread the lord has given you to eat this is what lord yahweh has commanded everyone is to gather as much as they need take an omer for each person you have in your tent the israelites did as they were told Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the Omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone gathered just as much as they needed. And so through community, they all ended up with exactly the right amount. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. A a daily dependence upon the Lord apparently is happening here. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. I like how God doesn't have to like kind of blast it out with anger. God just says, you know what? You want to disobey? I'll just go ahead and throw you some natural consequences. And, and what a wonderful natural consequence. As you open it up and say, aha, I kept my oh, staying. Oh, and over and over again, You have God's children thumbing their nose at him and God making sure that he doesn't just kind of leave them to their own devices. God forbid if that's that's what we were able to do, but he continues to guide them, guide them, guide them to a place of glory that they're not just meant to be people that are sustained and dependent in a way that makes them passive and immature forever. God wants to, yes, sustain them and have them dependent on him. Why? Not so that they remain immature forever, so that in their maturity, they become great. Amen. And that's always God's plan for you on this path from your, your young moments of salvation to your ultimate glory, is that he's always looking to make you great. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed. And When the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person. Nobody really knows what an omer is, but based on some speculation, it's about two liters. You know, think about a two-liter bottle. Uh, so it's about two liters of grain per person. Uh, on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest. That's the first time the Sabbath is mentioned in all the Bible. It was uh, kind of implied when we saw that God worked for six days and on the seventh day he rested. So on this Sabbath day, he did rest Here it's being actually given to God's people. Now, imagine for four hundred and thirty years, you have had a twenty four seven lifestyle of work. You've been slaves for four hundred and thirty years or for all of your life. And all of your children are born into that slavery and all of their children are born into that slavery and they've never had a day off. God is giving them their first vacation day ever. He said, I want you to have a pattern to your life that I established in all of creation. There is a beauty in creation that has with it, yes, work and the fulfillment of work, but also with it rest and the sweetness of rest. That will come your way tomorrow is to be a day of sabbath rest a holy sabbath to the lord so bake what you want to bake and boil all you want to boil save whatever is left and keep it until morning so they saved it until morning as moses commanded and it didn't stink and it didn't get maggots eat it today moses said because today is a sabbath to the lord you will not find any of it in the ground six days you were to gather but on the seventh day the sabbath there won't be any Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. You get a day off. Congratulations. That is why on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. This is what, the fifth time now that the people have actually just completely rejected the Lord? And what is God's response to them at this moment? Hey, don't you get it? I'm giving you a rest. So take the rest. It's, it's for you. It's my gift. All right, settled. Let's move on. Verse 31, the people of Israel called the bread Manna. Manna sounds like the Hebrew for what is it in, in your footnotes. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. That sounds pretty good. I don't know, by the way, if it would sound pretty good after 40 years. But apparently it was a delight and it was just sweet enough. Not so sweet. Uh, and it was able to sustain God's people for 40 years. This is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for generations to come so they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. God wants his miracles not only to affect the people themselves so that they always learn to depend on the Lord, but he wants to have it as a keepsake as well so that generation after generation will always have this touch point and this evidence so that they can see the great Deliverance of the Lord and learn to depend on the Lord just as their forefathers and their forefathers had all done. And so likewise, he gives us the word of the Lord, which we'll talk about in a moment. That is the same function for us. We have actually this story written here. It serves as the illustration of the Omer would have the Omer of, of uh, manna would have served for them. So the story of all of this in our Bibles serves that very same function for us. And, and as we really do ingest the word of the Lord, as we have our daily manna, our, our daily time with the Lord, so likewise, it brings about the, the same result. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar, put an omer of manna in it, then place it before the Lord to be kept for generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the tablets of the covenant law that it might be preserved. The covenant law is coming uh, and Obviously, this is written by, by Moses after all of these events. The Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Cana. And then it says, by the way, an Omer is one tenth of an ephah." Hope that helps you in your dimensional analysis. <laughs> Alright, my first point is craving slavery. To be unshackled from the oppressive overlords and the brutality of the slave drivers of Egypt required only a moment. It was simply a change of heart wrought by the Lord and all of a sudden your status changes from Charles the slave to Charles on his way to the promised land. But that is not really apparently enough to change the way that you make sense of all things in your life. And though we may go from being buried in baptism to being raised with Christ as we are delivered by the provision of the Lord, nonetheless, it's easier to take the boy out of slavery than to take the slavery out of the boy. And as, as we see here, we see a language of addiction and it's and it's really the language of denial. Mm-hmm. And I do not just that they wanted to go back to the Nile, uh, but but it is the language of denial <laughs> that as you look back to your old life, you look back to that old life and you think, was it really so bad? Mm-hmm. You know, back then I did what I wanted. I was my own man. I made my own decisions. I wasn't confined by the words of this book. If I wanted to go out and get blind drunk, I went out and I got blind drunk. That's right. That's right. I wasn't so bad. Everybody, sadly, has the idiocy of this thought process. And that despite an astounding deliverance that God brought in my life, in your life, It's so easy, so easy, because you've gotten so used to the slavery. You've gotten so used to the slavery of of being enslaved by others' opinions of you. And suddenly, to transcend what other people think of you, it's not so easy. And it might be that, like the Israelites, back here in in verse 3... Ah, oh, if only we had died back in Egypt. Back then, man, how would that great. Remember, don't you remember we sat around those pots of meat? Wasn't that awesome? Despite the fact that our backs were bleeding and that our, our hands were crippled with arthritis? And the We're permanently bent over from the work that we had done? That your eyebrows were cinched from the ovens of the work of that day? Oh, but all I remember is the pots of meat that were there. And it's very easy to get selective in this and very dangerous, of course, for this because it's what everyone who is addicted says to themselves. It's the excuse-making tapes that run in our heads when we're not ready to really get serious, not just about wanting God to say we're okay, but to actually, in our character and in our soul, to be okay to be delivered. Not just to be declared delivered, but to truly be delivered in our very person. That you are no longer one who needs to lie because you're no longer enslaved by others' opinions of you. That you no longer need the flirtations of your friends at school or the workplace to validate you in any way. Why? Because now you've come to rise above that and to gain all of your status and deliverance from God's affirmation of you as the one whom he loves, with whom he's so well pleased. Now, the financial infidelity that ruled your life before is so difficult at times to seemingly have it purged away as we actually live our lives, even with the stuff that we have from God, by honoring God with it. It's so hard still to actually have taken out from us a bitterness that protected us, an unforgiveness that gave me security because, oh my goodness, what if I drop my shield and drop my guard with that person in my life? Can I really trust that I'll still be okay? These are not easy things. And even though you may have risen from the... the spiritual rebirth there's all of this that still needs to be refined and it's so easy to think you know what i was better off when i kept my mom in the doghouse because then i had some control and then i had peace of mind because i knew she was in the doghouse and that actually gave me security along the way or perhaps it's but when I gave in to my anger, people actually did what I wanted. When I let my frustration boil over, it seemed like the kids were quicker to obey back then. Maybe, maybe I'm off, off target here with the way that I'm living out my delivered life. There is a million permutations to this. And they're all frightening because they're all actually provided by the flesh. It's it's not the spirit that is informing your... It is the flesh and the deep cravings of the flesh. Not realizing that the things that we are craving bring us back into an awful slavery. An awful slavery. I think about the, the awful oppression of my life. Always, always wanting to kind of have that next achievement so that my soul could be validated. To have no self-worth that was intrinsic to me other than what was said on my performance review, or what was indicated in my raise, or what was validated by my promotion. That was how my self-worth rose or fell, day by day, and I was completely a slave to that. And my goodness, you hitch your wagon to something like that, and it's going to have its down days and its up days, but in the end, if that's what gives you your deliverance, then you will be tortured by it you 'll be twisted by it I was I had a completely distorted perception of, of of what it is that I was meant to be in in God and it was so distorted by the things that delivered me that all that bred out of that the pride the the arrogance the insecurity the the roller coaster of, of emotions that all came with that was. All born out of a slavery to all of the things that God wants to deliver us. I don't know what it might might be for you that you say, Wow, remember back when we sat around those pots of coarse joking, those pots of beating our chest and our arrogance, those pots of doing what we wanted with our money, those pots of having a little fun with the boys, those pots of gonna you know dishing with the girls about everybody else. Remember that? Wasn't there kind of a bit of thrill that? You know what? Sadly, there is a bit of a thrill in all of those things. And I know, I think, probably more than the average person, let's say more than the abnormal person, I had ridiculous amounts of fun from any way that the world would measure fun. And if I were to look back at the pots of meat, matter of fact, all of my kind of Fraternity brothers and that whole group. The stories they tell are my stories of what I did back then. Of the craziness and the lunacy and how much fun and and wildness that that, that all of that was. And from, from any perspective, those pots of meat were wonderful. They were maybe in the moment, but I know that every morning when I woke up, and that's without fail, every morning when I woke up, There was a darkness in my soul and an emptiness that was indescribable. And and you know what I would do to, to try to overcome it in those days? Is just simply try to ignore the implications of living my life that way. You know what God wants us to do in our deliverance? He wants you to never ignore the implications of living your life this way, living your life for Him. That's the, that's how I know that the worldview given by the Bible is without question incomparable to any other worldview. Because any other worldview, you at some point have to ignore the implications of that worldview. If your worldview is just simply materialism and that's all there is and Darwinism, if that's, if that's your worldview, well, then, you also have to recognize, then, that your desire for social justice, in your worldview, is an anomaly. That your desire for altruism actually runs counter to any Darwinistic self-selection uh, rubric that, that, that it would dictate. That, that your worldview means that you are just a happy coincidence of a primordial slime that came together in, in such a way that you're only deceiving yourselves to think that your life has meaning. Your life has absolutely no meaning. But if you begin to really contemplate your worldview in any other worldview but God's, then you come away in the depths of despair. That's why Nietzsche said of the atheistic worldview that it ultimately, if you're honest with yourself, it will lead you to nothing less than madness. And only in God... Contemplate the Omer. Contemplate the Ten Commandments. Contemplate what it is that I've gathered. Contemplate what it is that I have... Because when you contemplate that and you realize, Oh my goodness! The implications of my freedom and living it out are incredible. I'm going to be more Christ-like day by day. I am in a body of Christ. I have community. I have affirmation from the Creator of the universe. I have a depth of fellowship that is a love that lays down... My life for others and others for me. I have fulfillment and peace of mind. And if all it is is for this life, well, that ain't nothing. Because in the age to come, I will live beholding the face of God in beautiful harmony with all of God's recreation. And I will be enthralled every moment. Scenes of bliss forever new rise in succession to our view. That's the implications of our deliverance rather than craving of slavery. Second point, desert training. I didn't know whether to call this desert training or dessert training. 1S, sand. 2S, strawberry sundae. Remember? You learned that in grade school somewhere. Well, because... The training is in the desert, of course, but it is all around the sweetness of this bread that they get to eat every day. But, but but let me talk about this desert training. You know, here they are in the desert. And why are they in the desert? Why have they been placed here? God is the one who has maneuvered all of the events, brought them through the Red Sea, before taking them... Why not just go up the Gaza Strip and enter right into the into the Promised Land out of Egypt? Why does he take this circuitous route that he takes. Why? Because they're obviously not ready yet. Why? Because if it's just a couple weeks time for them to say, ah, you know what? I'm not so happy with what we've got here. Maybe we should have died in Egypt. What about our... our Obviously, God is not ready to bring this people into the promised land. And they're not going to be capable of taking on the great challenge of faith. That awaits them when they really start whomping and stomping for the Lord. And being able to know the victorious new life. They're not ready yet. And so what do they need? They need some desert training. And how does God provide that? He actually provides it through the difficulties that they're going to face. How does God provide it for you? So that you could become a person with glory. A person with greatness. A person with gravitas. How does he provide that to you? He provides it to you through the difficulties and the challenges of your life. Right. Have you ever met someone that just had everything going for them in life? Maybe you went to school with somebody like that. Maybe you work with somebody like that. Everything was easy street for them. They were born into good looks. They, they, they uh, had, you know had all the right schools. They had all the right communities. They had the nuclear family. Everything went well. But you know what you thought about that person probably? and that, that girl is shallow. But if you... There is no depth to that guy. But if you really want to be someone that is deep and sensitive, empathic, of, of proven worth, well then, you need a little bit of challenge to your life. The Bible doesn't say without cause that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character. Suffering produces, yes, character. And in and, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. Uh, all of this, all of this that happens to the Israelites in the desert is brought to them courtesy of God. And so you might say, well, so is are you saying then that God is making all these bad events happen in my life? right? Is the strain on my marriage brought to me courtesy of God? Is the disappointment with my kids' unfaithfulness actually orchestrated by God? No. This is what I'm saying, is that when God created the heaven and the earth, he did not create deserts. You don't see that in Genesis 1 and 2. But in the fall, we brought about deserts. And since deserts exist, well, God's going to go ahead and use them. He's going to use them here. And since they exist, He's going to go ahead and use them in your life as well. Is the uh, serious disruption to the harmony of your marriage the will of God? It is not. But the way that you respond to it and the way that you can actually come through that Be one that is actually more loving, more respectful to repair that marriage. Well, you know what? Then God will use that again and again. But in this desert training, if we're to understand the book of Exodus, we're going to understand the, the books of the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Well, then we've got to always be looking towards the book that you all have read repeatedly this morning, Deuteronomy. Look at what Deuteronomy says about these events. Now, Deuteronomy is five great speeches by Moses, which are commentary on the events of Exodus. And in the first one, Moses says, and you shall, I'm sorry, second speech, Moses says, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know whether what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you, and he let you hunger, and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And then he concludes it by saying, As a man disciplines his son, so the Lord disciplines you. Why? Because God wants his people to be glorious. Because God wants His people to rise to the occasion of service to Him, and to be distinct from the world when they enter into the Promised Land. Why even hard times that come into our lives? Because God is going to use them to see if you're going to depend on Him. Whether you're going to live on your own sensibilities, on the world's sensibilities, or whether you are going to be informed in your mind, in your heart, in your conscience, By the word of the Lord, that this for us is to live on every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And the Israelites began to realize that, you know what? God said, go right. We went left. Ah, natural consequences heaped upon our heads. Maybe we better live by the word of the Lord. It was a morality tale played out before our eyes in the book of Exodus, but explained by Moses in his great speech just before they enter into the promised land. And in Deuteronomy says, you know, those events that occurred, here's what was really going on there. And so it's good for us to have this insight from Moses as he talks about what he went through as he was leading the people. But it's good to have this insight for us as well to know that this is God's will that not only have you crossed through the Red Sea, not only have you been delivered out of your old life, but now that you have this new life, you are now going to be used by the Lord. And you know what God says? If that's going to happen, you're going to have to learn to depend every day on the word of the Lord. As Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. What What is that daily bread? No, not the manna that comes down from heaven. It is the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord that shows us the bread from heaven. As Jesus explains in John 6, I am the bread of life that comes down from heaven. Moses, he even says, Moses didn't give you that. It's verse 32 on in, in uh, John 6. Moses isn't the one who gave you the bread, but it's the Lord who gave it to you. And I am that bread. Now, if we're going to understand our lives, how how can we live free? The very thing the Israelites didn't get because they're like, I want to go back. I want to go back. If we're to understand how are we to live free? Well, then the way that you will understand what to do with that freedom comes from a daily dependence and beautiful humility on the word of the Lord. But if you begin in any way to discount that deliverance and devalue that humility and begin to rely on self. And the way that that happens is our prayer life becomes anemic and our study of the word of the Lord becomes a checkbox and then something worse. Nothing at all. No, nothing deliberate. Nothing that's, I'm really going to learn the word of the Lord. Maybe it's uh, what, what some people call lucky dipping. Ah, uh, I don't know what to read. Um, let me see here. Oh, teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Hey, I guess that's what I'm going to do today. Uh, that wasn't bad, by the way. But <laughs> but if that's all that we've got going on, then you are not aligning yourself with God's will for your gravitas and your greatness and your glory. It is going to happen when you begin to depend on the word of the Lord every day. When they had to gather the sustenance from the Lord. Why did God have it come down as flakes that they would bake or boil? Why did he just go all the way with the miracle? Why did not he just put cakes on tables in their homes? Oh, look at that. Hand me one of those. Why? Because God wants you to cooperate with his provision. All that he provides you, though, is all the more remarkable when you are participating in that provision with the Lord. And the other thing that's, that's pretty amazing about this provision is that it's done in community. He says, each one of you go out and gather. But as you gather gather for your households right. and as you gather together some will gather a lot some will gather a little but in the end you're all going to have exactly the right amount yep. It's all going to be right on time for every one of you and and they measured it by the omer the one who gathered too much did not have too much and the one who gathered too little didn't have too little everyone gathered just as much as they needed and, and thus they had That if you're thinking about all of these things that I've said individualistically, well then, we've got no chance. God has baptized us into one body by one spirit. That our participation in the provision and the deliverance of the Lord, the training of the Lord, is meant to be training communally. And, And if this is just about you having a great quiet time, you having a great prayer life, you having a great dependence on the Lord, then... Your chances of knowing the full glory that is meant to be yours will not come. We are being transformed by, ever, by the Holy Spirit into ever-increasing glory, 2 Corinthians 3.18. But it's we. This glory is not your individual glory. This greatness is not your individual greatness. And this gravitas is not your individual gravitas. That just means kind of you, you matter, you have significance, gravitas, uh, gravity. But this is our communal It's our communal descriptor about what God is doing with us. And so, what are you doing with the word of the Lord? Are you actually engaged in discipleship with one another in the word of the Lord? Is that part of your life in Christ? This is the desert training. This is the dessert training. This is the dessert portion of it. We have the word of the Lord. Taste and see that it is sweet. This is what we've been given We've been delivered, and now we've been delivered into a life of phenomenal significance. Purpose. No longer purposelessness. Now we have actually a mandate from God about the trajectory of the rest of our lives. And and the way that you grow into it, and the way that you participate in it, is to be in the Word of the Lord. And it's interesting that the manna came in the morning. I don't want to make too much of that, but I do find... That if you actually allow your conscience to be informed by the word of the Lord in the morning, it seems to be a much better day. Yeah. And if you just rearrange your life so that that can be the case, there is a wonder to the growth that occurs in your Christian walk. <laughs> but you've got to ask yourself right now, do you want to be trained? Do you want to be refined? Or do you want to just simply fade day by day? Fade back into the cravings of slavery. There is no, well, I just want to kind of plateau. I just want to tread water. No, you're, you're either gaining ground or you're losing ground. There is either an intentionality of your relationship with God that produces maturity, or there is a drifting away. To kid yourself into thinking, I'm just in maintenance mode. I set my life on cruise control in the Lord, and that's pretty much the way it's going to go. That's a fallacy, for sure. Uh, he who is not progressing is digressing. And, and, and this is a truism of all of our walks. Let me encourage you, if you are not on a, on a, a deliberate plan with one another towards growth in your Christian walk, you're missing out on the bountiful grace of God. And finally, there's an oasis in the desert. Right Right after the Israelites' deliverance through the sea, they went into the desert. Right after your deliverance through the waters of baptism, God's going to put you into a desert. Why? Because Jesus, right after his deliverance, or really his fulfillment of all righteousness said better in the waters of baptism affirmed by God. This is my son whom I love with whom I am well pleased. What was the very next thing that Jesus did? He was driven into the desert. And in that desert training, he was afflicted by Satan for 40 days. He did it with fasting and he did it for us. And As you're going through your desert, know that you can go through this desert. Why? Because Jesus has gone through an even greater desert for you. That the end of this desert is a promised land, but even in the midst of this desert is a progression as well for you. Because Jesus didn't just go to that desert. He went to an even greater desert. He was deserted. As he said, my God, my God, why have you deserted me? He bore the greatest of all desertions. He bore the greatest of all wilderness experiences. The desert is a place where nothing can thrive, where everything is taken away. Jesus on the cross, in his being deserted completely, by everyone that followed him, having been stripped of even his dignity, his clothing, being given nothing but shame, stripped of his honor, and even stripped of his sonship. Why? Because he is an oasis for you. Amen. It is so that you can drink deeply of his provision, so that you can have the honor that he left going into the desert for you. So that you could have the greatness, the gravitas, the glory. So that you can have the dignity. So that you can have the peace and the sweetness that is, that is given in him, in that oasis. He is your oasis in this desert. Because he has already thwarted the desert. And if you're going through a desert you can know that you go through that desert in lockstep with Jesus. That He is taking you through this desert, and you are yoked with Him in a beautiful rest, even as you go through the desert, because you know that He has taken on the worst of all deserts that you never will have to face. You will never, in the end, be deserted if you are in Christ. And because you have that certainty, you have that peace of mind from what He has done for you, you can go through this desert now, knowing that it's for your refining, and for your becoming even more like Christ, and for your greater service to Him. All of this, all of this we need to be reminded of, by the sweetness of that bread that comes from heaven, again and again and again. And so my final charge for us today is, in humility, resolve to depend on God for daily bread. What better challenge could we have from this passage? Resolve that you will depend on God for your daily bread. Make a Bible plan that takes you through the end of the year if you don't already have one. And if you don't already have one, then it's not a time for pride. It is a time, as he says, to humble yourself. To humble yourself, to see if you will depend on the word of the Lord. And so... Why not align yourselves with what it is that the Holy Spirit is bringing us right here? This dependence is daily, and it is on the bread of life. It is on the word of the Lord. Make a Bible reading plan. You've got 56 days from now until the end of the year. Why not just have a a 56-day Bible reading plan? If you don't have one, let me suggest this. Have the bread of life in your life every day. Jesus every day for the next 56 days Jesus in the 16 chapters of Mark 24 of Luke and 21 of John If you read one chapter a day and two chapters on Sabbaths then you will complete every one of these chapters between now and December 31st and I just want you to ask one question so that you are an active reader you're an intentional reader that you are a reader that is being humbled and inspired by the text. What is something sweet about Jesus, the bread of life, that I just encountered in my reading today? And if you could just make a a list of one thing, just one thing as you read all of Mark 1 and all of the wonders of what Jesus does in Mark just one thing. But then on December 31st, you're going to have a list of 56 things. And it will enthrall your soul And it will enliven your walk. And it will refine you in the way that God wanted to refine the Israelites in the desert.